Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 172. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish you'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at BJourneyman. We are a couple of pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor-neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Imagine with me for a second that you're in the middle of an internship at a software company and the manager that brought you in for that internship offers you a job. What do you do? Do you take the job and move full-time into the working world, or do you finish college? That was the same decision point our guest this week had. Evan Oldford is a senior director of an escalations group at Cisco Systems. You see, Evan was interested in software development at an early age, and that is how he got the internships. He made some interesting transitions between different companies, and he experienced a number of acquisitions. Were those good or bad? Some of our past guests didn't have the greatest experience going through an acquisition. What was it like for Evan? And if you're someone out there who's thinking about breaking into software engineering, how do you do it? How can a people leader who maybe feels like they don't have all the experience they need, how can they gain that experience or make up for it in some way? What resources are available to help? Evan's going to share those with us this week. And what's it like to be an escalation manager? What's that really all about? What if I told you there was a stress management technique you could do every workday to help decrease your stress and increase your visibility and value within the organization? Would you do it? Well, it just so happens that Evan recently wrote a book called Ghost Rules, Unspoken Secrets of Getting Ahead. And he's going to tell us about a daily practice that can achieve exactly this. If you don't believe me, listen up. Because here we go with part one of our interview with Evan Olford. Evan Olford, thanks so much for joining us on Nerd Journey today. I'm excited to be here, Nick. Let's start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do, Evan. I am a senior director at Cisco Systems. I manage what is called an escalations group. So my engineering team takes issues from support into engineering, and we focus on how to restore service for customers, specifically in the security domain. And you've been you've been doing that uh, for a number of years, right? About how long did you say? In a number of different capacities, but about getting close to 20 years total at Cisco, but uh, there's been many journeys within that, and I think we can unpack that pretty soon. Absolutely. Let's jump into the Wayback Machine for a second, Evan, because we haven't talked to that many people who have this software engineering background, right? When you talk about software vendors and you hear the term engineering, people don't always know what that means, We did interview Mike Wood recently about his career in software development, but 
let's go back a little bit into what was it that made the software engineering role and career path interesting to you? I would say it kind of goes back to college days. This was uh, kind of mid-90s, mid to later 90s, and that whole internet wild west was starting to come up. And so I got my first distribution of Linux, tried to install it many times, and kind of started that route and worked down that rabbit hole, got into shell scripting in one of my classes, and then just kept on going in a little bit deeper, worked on a, a minor in computer science. I did major in econ. And then during that time, I was doing, I picked up two summer internships. One was for Sun Microsystems, and this was on the early web. So this was just when the Netscape, uh, not even the browser, this was actually the server was coming around. And so doing some preliminary web development on that. And then I found a, the next summer, I found a internship uh, in the San, San Jose Mercury News newspaper that I submitted. It started me down this journey. And so went through the dot-com boom and bust. Uh, really just the proliferation of uh, how fast things were changing on the internet. Just uh, how can you get dialed in? And uh, that just really kind of set me down this path and evolved from there. That's so cool. There's web development, and then there's application development. And I guess now you could say there's cloud development. Yep. This is kind of web three. Yeah, yeah. So lots of different categories. I, I remember Mike Wood saying he got in the in on the early days of Visual Basic, Visual Studio, and uh, and the .NET framework. Any early entry into a wave in the software industry for you? I don't know that I would say any specific language. I always veered more toward the scripting side, Born Shell, getting into Perl, and then getting down into some lower level, so C, and going down those paths. And it always fascinated me, and just a, kind of with a book in one hand, keyboard in another, and sometimes a debugger, and just going and... Uh, trial and error and uh, going and learning that way. That's a great way to learn through the iteration of doing, seeing what happens, getting some feedback. Even if you don't have like the classical training in a particular area, that feedback loop is one form of really deliberate practice that we've heard about in, in different books. Hello world in as many languages as you can. Now, as you started to do the internships, you eventually started working for a communications company, I think, right? Yes. So Whistle Communication, this was a all-in-one. Think of it as an email server, web server, firewall, all in a really easy kind of small package. And so I was interning there. Actually, this was when things were really going in the go-go days. Uh, I had a conversation with one of the VPs of engineering. He's like, why don't you stop school? I was like, not ready to do that yet. And uh, I'm happy I continued on that. That's where I met my wife. Uh, I did that for a couple summers, interning there. Got to shadow really smart engineers, learn a lot by looking over the shoulder and making plenty of mistakes. But uh, learned a lot there, finished uh, school, graduated. And then after I graduated, at the time, I went back to my previous boss and just checking to see, are you interested? I'm graduated. It was a little bit 
odd because he was really quiet. Turns out they were going through an acquisition of Whistle being purchased by IBM during the time. So after, it was probably about six weeks or so, and then he hired me on there. And so Whistle turned into a division within IBM. And so kind of went back there and joined him. That's cool. You kept the connections warm with the people you had met and who believed in you. And this was the same person who said, hey, you should quit school and work for me now, right? Yep. That's a tough decision point. I mean, do you continue the school, jump in at the experience chance you have, or kind of do a hybrid like you did? I think a lot of people, you know, I see threads on Reddit all the time about, hey, I'm not sure what to do in school and... I, I don't know what I want to do with my career, and should I just jump into into this field without the education? How am I going to get a job? Any thoughts on, on that, looking back? So my philosophy was I went to school for an education. It's where I was majoring in econ, kind of a completely dis different discipline. I had the computer thing kind of locked in. It was seemed like a pretty sure thing. It just kind of gave me a different perspective on it. I liked the technical part, but I also kind of got an education while I was at it. And so I think in hindsight, most people don't leverage what they learn as much in school, kind of with their degree and stuff. And so kind of use it for the experience test and just dabble and learn as much as you can. And then I would say for the career side, just kind of find what's kind of interesting and that'll really kind of set you off on a, a good path usually and because you'll be just drinking up new experiences uh, left and right. I wouldn't get too worried about trying to pick the perfect major or anything like that. Just go and try a bunch of different things. I like the internship approach and honestly, if I had been super interested in technology in college, then I, I would have done it. But, you know, math mm -hmm. major, went into education, stumbled into IT, yep. as you know. And I'm, I think about my 12-year-old daughter, and I'm like, okay, you know, depending on what you want to do, there are internships out there. In your case, was it a paid internship yeah. or okay? It was very, it was generous. I, I was looking at my paycheck that was coming from Sun. I was like, wow, this is this is way better than delivering papers or anything like that. So it, yeah, I, I think the internships is, they're really underrated because this is where you don't need to necessarily know what you want to do for your complete profession and just try and test. And I actually, I kind of wish more people did more internships and not necessarily just reserve it just for college. All right. Somebody looking to change careers, for example, they yep. need that leg in and the little bit of experience. That's a good point. Yeah. It's harder if you're not fresh out of school. Yep. Speaking of that, when you did your internship, how was the interaction with the engineers that you worked with during that time? I mean, is there this weird dynamic of, oh, this person is just an intern? Or how did they, if you don't mind talking about it, no. how did they welcome, not welcome you from a cultural perspective and what you wanted to get out of it? It probably span kind of the entire panorama. Uh, I would say, generally speaking, it was really intimidating because there are some very smart engineers and they're not necessarily there or vested in kind of uh, just teaching you. But then there are others who will just, uh, they will spend an hour and just go describe everything. And so 
uh, you'll see pretty much uh, everything in that um, generally. And so try and find kind of the engineers that are interested in investing in you and in just letting you learn and try out things and make sure you have a sandbox uh, so you're not doing anything on production too much. And you, you learn a lot from that. Yeah, don't run an update or insert statement on a live SQL server. Been there, done that. Not a good idea. Once you got into the full-time position uh, with Whistle, you know, mm -hmm. after they were a part of IBM, was the was the full-time job what you thought it would be after having this internship experience? Any major differences? It was more of a continuation. I was lucky to be in kind of a special project type where you're prototyping some things and testing on that. And that really fed into where I gravitated more. And that was more on the troubleshooting and learning that full stack. And that kind of, I kept on that path throughout my career. Yeah, I like the full stack mindset. I'm sure that Scott Lowe, if he's listening, would be smiling, host of the Full Stack Journey podcast. But yeah, I think it's great to hear someone with a software engineering background seeking to understand the full stack because that really, I think, enables the collaboration between yourself and other teams within the organization outside of the development of the products. Yeah, and uh, I would say one behavior I see kind of zooming out is a, a common mindset from software engineers is that they have a kind of a very small myopic view that they touch this part of the system, but they don't look on the other parts. And it's a, a disservice because uh, there's just so much uh, more than just your own feature, your own area. And so going beyond that and looking at what's adjacent and that looking at the full stack. It sounds like you were you were able to determine what you wanted your focus to be in the full stack lens. What are your thoughts on whether people who want to get into the software industry maybe should have a specialization area when they come into it or if a general approach is better? I think you can flip a coin and be right on both sides of that coin. It it will depend on kind of where you're interested. I know some individuals will want to super specialize and be the very best at one small area and just only focus on that. And and that works well. There's a market for that. Then there's also maybe the generalist who wants to touch everything, and that works too. So it just depends on how you want to scratch the itch and what kind of feeds your interest. Right, and marry that with what the employer in question needs, wants. What's needed. But generally, there's more demand than supply, so you can usually kind of find a home. What kind of made you want to move on from Whistle or IBM when the time came? At the time, this was when wireless 802.11 Wi-Fi was starting to get a lot more more popular. I went to a vendor that was doing a lot of that mobility. There were some engineers from Whistle there that helped me transition over to that. And uh, that was uh, interesting and learned a fair amount, started getting a little bit lower into the systems uh, and then did that st stint there that was uh, called vernier networking or vernier networks and then uh, shortly after that the manager who hired me into whistle and ibm he was at a small startup that was doing email and this was uh, ironport systems 
and he had a, a position asked me to come in for an interview and uh, so met the team this was uh, because uh, i had email in the background uh, as uh, one of my expertise it, it was a natural fit also within kind of the freebsd space and they were looking for the role was called an application engineer but effectively it was being able to troubleshoot the system that's how i got into ironport from there and Ironport then was a few years later acquired by Cisco in 2007. So it just uh, was an evolution on that. And the person who hired you on at Ironport was your manager through the internship. I love yes. it. Yep. That's so cool. I'm really curious, Evan, if I'm someone who wants to be great at software engineering, what are some of the skills that I need to develop not only within that discipline, but perhaps outside of it the tools make it easier nowadays uh, so with all the ides and uh, so it makes it much easier to know kind of what are the syntax and getting going there but i would say f start with something that is interesting to you and with open source you can actually get visibility into all kinds of uh, really interesting areas and then start kind of dissecting breaking it down into smaller parts and then to kind of figure out how it works and then rebuild from there so that you can start seeing, oh, this is how they're doing the threading or eventing and just to learn more there. I'm a big fan of O'Reilly and all the O'Reilly books. And so I like learning by reading and then going and doing. Now, some other individuals, they prefer to do more structured course curriculum. I would just say, find which is interesting to you and start clocking the hours to get to your 10,000 hours on that. That's right. 10,000 hours of deliberate practice is what we need for the deep expertise, according to a number of authors. And if I'm an IT generalist or just a technology generalist, but I have that passion for scripting, right, mm -hmm. that you had before, which maybe, I don't know if the purist out there said, well, that's not really software development or it is, right? How can they take steps to make a move into full-time software engineering? On the scripting part, look at kind of a, what is the problem you're trying to solve. And then I think if you start unpacking some of that scripting, you'll eventually look to or run into some sort of limitation of what that script can do. And then from there, say, okay, well, could I potentially pull this into a different language? And all the cool kids right now... Uh, or in doing like Python or something like that. Uh, and so see if you can rewrite that script in Python and then go and try and learn about some of the power that you can do within that language. And sometimes uh, what I've found is interesting is actually rewrite the script in a couple different languages. And so can you do in Python, Perl? You will start going down the rabbit hole on learning more and finding where is this language good, where are some of the deficiencies, and I'd say pick the right tool for the job, and uh, so you don't necessarily have to kind of force everything into one specific language and tailor your projects to there and go and try, try and learn more. I'm very impressed with uh, how much learning can be done now just by simple Googling it. You, you can get some great ideas from the 
uh, what code is being posted and stuff. And so I would say just take that and start building your portfolio on that and line by line and doing different variants and different techniques, coding practices, uh, and go and build from there. And is a good portfolio in my GitHub account or repo of choice, is that a good representation for a hiring manager of here's what I can do? Maybe I'm not fully to what you're looking for yet, or do I need something else in addition, you think? That's certainly one area. It demonstrates how you are proficient and uh, trying new things. And there are a bazillion open source projects where you can contribute. You can contribute patches, testing, translation, scripting, and stuff. And so uh, using GitHub and other contributions are a great way where you may not have that liberty with your nine to five job and to be able to demonstrate it, but you can show that you have initiative and you can learn and do new things. And so I think that does make individuals uh, appealing that they have ambition. And I think uh, that skill set, learning to code in our industry is is becoming quite a bit more prevalent. We, we may not completely understand everything a developer does as IT journalists, for example, but you know, getting a taste of that world where we can, like you said before, with the internship is sort of like that hybrid approach and being able to work with and collaborate with the people on GitHub, you know, that I think mm -hmm. that gives you the chance to ask some of those pointed questions. Hey, why are we doing it like that? Can you give me some feedback on, you know, why that makes more sense than what I was thinking? Hopefully those with a great deal of experience will be generous enough to share their knowledge. And sometimes you will wade into the room where maybe someone isn't quite as generous and that's okay. You just have to have a thick skin in some of those cases. It's going to happen no matter where you go. It'll it'll happen somewhere, whether it's online, yep. in person. There's going to yep. be somebody that gives you uh, some resistance, we'll just call it. And the reason I asked so many questions about what kind of skills do I need to attract a hiring manager is because you went into people leadership I after did. starting at Cisco. What, what kind of things made you want to do that? I transitioned from an individual contributor to manager, I'd say a little bit by accident. So this was uh, earlier on at Ironport. I probably transitioned uh, probably the best way you can is gradually. There was a need. So my manager that did hire me in, they asked uh, that I step into that role. And so really from the first day to the second day, there wasn't any real change. And I still was doing the same things, but it allowed me to start kind of learning and acquiring some more of those skills around just what is needed. And it do, it is a mind shift. And so while my previous part of my career, I was about acquiring technology, what can I put into kind of my toolbox from a technology perspective, then I would say the learning actually accelerated more and just understanding on the management side, what is needed to help make the individuals successful. That was an interesting transition. People are wired certain ways and uh, it worked well for me going into management. And I know that some ind other individuals find that this is not their thing. They're, they would much rather be an individual contributor. And some individual contributors think that they can only be successful by going to be a manager. I've seen that actually there's two different ladders, a technical ladder and a managerial ladder, and you can be successful at either and you pick the one that is right for you. And I think that 
each one of those ladders, the individual contributor as well as the manager, has an element of leadership in it. And maybe you just have to decide how much of that hat you want to place on your head? I would say not necessarily on that so much, because it really you don't have to have a title to be a leader. It really comes down to the influence that you have. And so whether people report to you or you're influencing through other means, it, I would say it just is a matter of how you're demonstrating that. And so there's two different ways to accomplish the leadership, and you don't have to be a manager to be able to do that. I like that. And what were some of the ways that you were demonstrating the leadership before you made the transition, I guess, maybe to give people a, an anecdotal example? I would say I got lucky because uh, I had a great manager that he trusted because, uh, frankly, my resume didn't suggest that I was a manager. It was kind of a stroke of a pen, and there I was. Now, there, I had a lot of learning to do, and on previous podcasts, I think uh, one of your co-hosts uh, or one of your guests mentioned uh, some tools, and so I I turned to books and podcasts uh, as kind of my tools of choice to learn a little bit more around the craft. And so Manager Tools and Career Tools, that's a, a free podcast, uh, absolutely excellent guidance. Uh, I've been listening to them since 2007 and a uh, great resource. And if John was here, he'd want to give you a virtual hug because he loves <laughs> Manager Tools. I'm so surprised that they give it away for free and it's such great guidance. Yeah, for sure. I just uh, then from there looked at other podcasts listening and then started to read more nonfiction on leadership principles and also other ideas around there. And that kind of helped me expand my horizon and perspective. You don't always get a chance to get the experience before you go into the role. And going to books is a great way to get a perspective on a technology and idea without actually having that experience. And so I found that to be a really good way to learn more and it really helped form kind of my thought process over the years. Now I have to ask, Evan, since I myself am an audible junkie, mm -hmm. do you prefer the paper form, the digital form, audio form, or is it kind of a mix of those for you? It will depend. And so I'm not a book snob at all. So I, I find that it's what works for you where you are during the time. So I listen to podcasts and Audible when doing chores around the house. That is a great way to be consuming that content. I've got the Kindle app on my iPad. I like reading that in dark mode because I can read it at night. Uh, without turning on the light. And so I can go through and work through kind of my books that, that way. But also, I don't like bringing the iPad to the beach. And so having a paper book. And so I would say, pick what works for you. And some people may gravitate to one, but I would just say it just depends on where you are and what do you want to accomplish. I found there was an interesting book that I recently read by Jeffrey Moore called Zone to Win. And so I was reading it on my Kindle, but then I needed to take my son to his basketball game, and I wanted to get through it a little bit more. And then I flipped over to the Audible portion on that and back and forth. And so it, it all works. Nice. Like a smooth handoff so you can continue your progress. I like it. 
when you read, since we're talking about that, do you like to take notes? How do you how do you help yourself remember it? I I love the Kindle app because you can actually highlight it and take notes in that, and you can export it as well. Another little secret that there there's there's another app called Libby where you can check books out from your library both and read it on your Kindle, but they also have Audible books as well. So I like using that for notes as well. I do love kind of marking up my copies of physical books, uh, highlighting those. And the one thing with listening to it is that content goes a little bit too fast, uh, and so you don't always catch it. And so I usually have a Google Doc uh, on my phone where I'll hit pause and I'll take down a note and I'll come back to it. Listening to your episode on deep work, you guys went really deep on that. And so I haven't gone to that level of dissecting the content but uh, I was quite impressed with that. Hey, thanks. Well, you know, like we said, it was episode seven of a planned two. That we ended. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we had more to say than we thought. I mean, I read the the book twice. I don't know how many times John read it, but it was his note taking that helped form the format of that. So that's why I asked the question. Yep, it's good because it, I find that it reinforces and and helps you maybe go back and implement some of the things you read from a book where you're trying to learn something. If I'm just listening. To the audio, I don't remember as much as if I take a few things down in my iOS note app yep. or something like that. It's a great point. Going back to becoming the leader, did you lead the team that you were once a part of or were was it a different team? And, and how did that go when you officially got the title? I did. I was lucky. We were still a very small startup. So when I joined Ironport, it was about 50 employees and stuff. And so when you're a small startup, everything's scrappy. And so everyone wears multiple hats. And so it, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was just yet another hat to wear during the time. So there really wasn't any major change from the perspective of the team. I think it, at the time, it was still quite small. So it wasn't a big deal on changing over. And how many direct reports did you have at the time, if you don't mind me asking? I think it, on that we started it with one, quickly grew from there as the need expanded on that. Okay. And I think you you work in a specific business <laughs> unit as your area of focus. Can you share what that is and maybe what made that the most interesting area to focus in? Yeah. So... I work in our security business group at Cisco with the prevalence of uh, all the cyber attacks and all the headline news nowadays. You can kind of see where there's a lot of interest. And so I've been steeped in this uh, early on. And so ever since I started with my internships, I, I've always been fascinated with firewalls and just the underlying security on that. And so building my expertise there. So when Cisco acquired Ironport, it was pulled into that business group. I didn't necessarily have to pick it. They kind of picked me. And so I've grown in kind of scope and influence over the years within the business group. And it sounds like your experience going through actually two different acquisitions was pretty good compared to maybe some other guests of ours who maybe not so great experience. Yeah, I, I would say there's lots of lessons learned, and they can be rocky in some cases. I find the really 
the acquisitions that work best is where you want to embrace the kind of the company that's doing acquiring because if you find that you had a culture at the startup and that's the only thing that counts and just push away everything else those tend not to go as well for an acquisition um over time people just start resenting that over time and then they will leave you can still embrace the culture the startup culture but also see the positives and in some cases you'll have to hold your nose through some of not great things usually you're being acquired by a bigger company and so there's a little bit of bureaucratic tax that goes along with it and recognize that is part of it and as i said you can kind of hold your nose and get through that part did you have a big uncertainty or concern that okay i'm in a i'm in a leadership role they may cut heads i'm fearful for longevity i haven't had that concern so much, uh, primarily in the role that we do within the escalations part. That is not the first place people will look for cutting. We are able to demonstrate the value on a daily basis, fighting what, the fire that is coming up. And so typically, that is not where you would go to look to optimize your OPEX uh, because uh, the, there is just that dynamic is, is actually quite valued. Or, or we've been able to position that to be quite valued in the company. And is that value positioning in terms of how it affects the corporate bottom line? Is that something you had to learn to do when you moved into the the leadership role? Or is that something you were already thinking about as you transitioned? Because I don't think everybody in technology has that lens of like, how does what I'm doing impact the bottom line? Does it at all? How does my company view costs, that kind of thing? I backed into it kind of by accident. And I kind of got lucky and that everything lined up. I, I picked a position that actually is aligned very well on that. So I think you're absolutely right in that there are some other positions where people are chasing the, the hot role and it, they're much more susceptible to boom and bust cycles versus it, maybe not as glamorous of a role, but it, it, it does it keep the lights on and there's much more uh, staying power with that. That makes sense. When we say escalation, that just kind of gives me the feeling that you deal with difficult situations day in and day out. And I like in the back of my mind, I'm like, why would someone want to do this? I think from a high level, maybe an escalation really just means, hey, this needs a higher priority than it has now. And maybe somebody's upset. Maybe there's just a lack in the feedback mechanism. How have you encouraged your teams to effectively manage what you would call an escalation? It definitely takes a certain character to be able to gravitate to that role. I like it because kind of the adrenaline rush is measured in days and weeks to be able to come to resolution on things. And if you have a good learning environment, you solve a really tough, thorny problem once, work it back into the system, and then you're off and learning about the next crisis, the next new problem. And so it's incredibly satisfying you know, just learning and seeing new challenges uh, on a regular basis. And so uh, when I look at it, 
it it doesn't feel stagnant. It feels like you're always changing, always doing something new because it, you are fundamentally seeing newer problems and it, kind of working that into the system. Not everyone is wired like that. Some individuals are really long-range planners where they measure things in years and they that is their strength for the role and the engineers and the, that work well in the role that for escalations I find they're a little bit of the more of the adrenaline junkie and they like to get that shot in the arm every day and so that works for them and so you just have to kind of find what position you're wired for and I kind of gravitated to this and it's worked well for me I love the dynamic nature of it and I I'm thinking like I just had a thought because of the fact that you work with the engineering team, so what we would call developers who are working on the products to eliminate bugs, right? Mm -hmm. For someone like yourself or members of your team to say, hey, we impacted the product in a positive way, helped eliminate this bug, I feel like that's just one of those job satisfaction elements that lets you feel like as an employee, you're really making an impact for the company and its customers. Not everybody gets that depending on what they do. It's an incredible influence. Now, not everyone has the kind of foresight to be able to connect the dots to see how their work is really adding impact. Depending on the company, at least for ours, our engineering team, our escalation team, is the face of engineering. And so being able to turn a customer around and be able to deliver a good resolution it's incredibly satisfying and so sometimes you'll need to work with the engineers to connect those dots but it does really i find it to be very satisfying i i like it i mean it reminds me of three signs of a miserable job by patrick lencioni and you're filling one of those holes because you get that sense of purpose impact a little bit higher volume or in your face kind of thing that's just what came to mind i wonder evan for those out there who may be the technology professional, right, whatever mm -hmm. bubble they're in right now, how do you think they can better manage their day-to-day -day escalations in whatever it is they do? And, and maybe what kind of skills are we as an industry lacking in that regard? A lot of it comes down to communication, relationships, and kind of building that trust. And so whether the escalation is because of technology failure, but if you're looking for a different role, it's not necessarily in an escalation, but to, for that management is, okay, what are the relationships are you building and trust? And how are you interacting with the other parts of the organization? Now, in a smaller company, you don't necessarily have cross geographies so, and it's a much smaller and, and frankly it's actually much easier to build those relationships you actually have to be working on kind of reaching out and building that network that virtual rolodex and how can i actually do this without making it feel like it's one more thing i have to do one more thing on my task list i'm overwhelmed by the amount of communication that i need to do to keep the lines hot or warm. It's difficult to say hey, from the perspective is because it is work and it is more. But I find that if you don't, you'll just be working harder trying to accomplish the same thing. And so you may be looking to get this one process pushed through and you may be banging your head against the 
organizational wall to try and get it done. If you had a relationship and knowing someone who's perhaps on your program management team, that you can just say, call them up and say, hey, I need some help with pushing this through. It's actually will save you time, but it may not be apparent right now. And so you'll have to do some investments there that you can kind of go back later on and use. You're putting that political capital in the bank by building the relationships. And and it's not, you know, you're not disingenuous about it or, or insincere when you go and meet people, but like there's a mutual benefit there to, to branching out, especially in a, I mean, in any organization to meeting more of the people you work with and finding out about what they do and maybe you can help each other, right? Absolutely. Yep. You were earlier talking about managing the the stress of mm-hmm. the role. And so one thing with the escalations is that it is does invite stress and it, it can wear on you. One thing around there that I've found, and this will ties in a little bit later on with the, my book, it is being able to give visibility on what is going on. And the one byproduct that I kind of stumbled into by accident is that I do a daily report that actually highlights everything that is going on in the organization. It's a lot of work, but in hindsight, when I look at it, I actually sleep really well at night. I, I My head hits the pillow. I don't wake up till morning. I'm not ruminating on anything. And when I go and deconstruct it, it's a form of journaling, actually, by doing that. But it's also providing visibility up into the organization. And so I highlight that in one of the chapters in my book around visibility on building that reporting. And so it has the benefit of it increases your visibility, kind of that value add to the organization. And it also de-stresses because you're not thinking about the problems because you've already put it down and gotten that out. And I found that to be, I I would say, almost a superpower, a competitive advantage over the years. And when you look, most people have don't report enough and communicate enough. And so I find this is to be a really useful way to go and get your visibility and also de-stress. Yeah, I like the concept of give somebody the update before they check in with you on the status and eliminate, you know, that sounds like a little bit of the short-circuiting that you're doing, but it also sounds like the same idea as the daily shutdown routine that Cal Newport talks about in Deep Work. Is that sort of your end-of-day shutdown routine as well? It is my end-of-the-day shutdown routine. I don't know when Cal Newport started that. Sounds like he stole it from you, actually. (laughs) I don't think he stole it from me at all. I probably was, I feel like I've been doing it longer, but um, it was good validation on seeing kind of how that tied in in the book. It did help. And is this a a block of time that you say, okay, I'm going to take 30 minutes or an hour or 45 minutes during this slot of the day, do this, and then work is, you know, or should be finished at that point. So I feel lucky in that my role is incredibly flexible. That's one thing Cisco does really tout. I kind of pop out of work. I do dinner with the family every day, read with the kids, get them down to bed. And then after that, then I come online and then I wrap up on the daily. And that is kind of my shutdown routine. And so it's nice that it's not like I have to hit it by 3 p.m. I potentially could, but I'm still getting information on what's coming in 
later in the evening. And so that helps me with my shutdown routine. That's awesome. I, I think that's a, a lesson for all of us. And this is this update, it needs to be somewhat brief and to the point. You can't be super wordy. Absolutely. I say that you want it to be short enough that you can read it in line while getting your coffee at Starbucks. And because oftentimes when you're doing the reporting, you're usually reporting up and the demands on people's time and attention are at a premium. And so you want to be able to distill it down to the bottom line up front and really to the essence and not necessarily all the trivia that would go into it. And so I find it incredibly useful to actually really strip out all the extraneous information and to what is the most important bits. And when you first started doing it, was that hard? That's a, That seems like a hard skill to be brief enough, but give enough detail so it doesn't go unutilized by others. I struggle with it on a daily basis because uh, there's so much good things that go into, let's say, a, a resolution of a thorny problem. You might want to outline the dynamics of the customer situation, business situation, and, and stuff. But you'll have to take a step back and look at it and see, is this is this really adding to the bottom line? It is a constant practice, and it doesn't come easy at all. Well, I'm sure you're you're getting in that 10,000 hours, right? <laughs> more than me. many more than that by now. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You're way past. That's that's fantastic. And it's good that you've made it a habit. Just so everybody listening understands, this is something that Evan is encouraging us all to do whether we're an individual contributor or a person in leadership, this idea of a daily update to the the people that need it, right? You don't have to copy the world, but there there are people who are going to need to know these things. This is a great platform for you to be able to add your own insight. I had one manager and the way he described it, he's like, I like it because I get smarter. And so your job is to try and make your audience smarter. And so not just call the balls and strikes that, that happened during the day, add some color commentary. What some of the insights, this is a great way for you to demonstrate that I like the aspect where it's a form of journaling and de-stressing. Mm -hmm. I guess I didn't think about the daily update providing that, but I, I really like that. Yeah. I listen to a lot of podcasts and a number of people who kind of highlight being mindful and everything. They talk about journaling and I was like, I should start this. Wait, I already do this. And so it, I kind of connected the dots and I was like, okay, well, maybe this is why I'm able to sleep so well at night. One of my personal book goals this year was to read Ghost Rules, Unspoken Secrets to Getting Ahead by Evan Oldford. So it was really great to have him on the show and hear some of the advice from the book straight from Evan. He's been doing that daily update for quite some time. And what was interesting to me is that he says it's not easy. It's not easy to do to have that kind of brevity. And I agree. When I try to be brief enough to communicate up the chain, it's it's pretty hard to decide exactly what to say because you're only going to get so much of people's attention before they tune out. 
But getting that stuff out of your head, I mean, especially for someone who's in escalations where you have to prioritize and reprioritize and you're consistently being asked for things where people may be pretty upset and angry, frustrated, that has to put some frustration on you with a constant shot of adrenaline. So to be able to get that out of your head so you can rest is a great thing in that role. And imagine what it can do for people in any role. If you're doing something like this, I'd love to hear about it. Tweet at me at NetworkNerd underscore or at NerdJourney to share what you do at the end of your day to shut it down, shut your brain down so that you can rest. How about that decision to stay in school? Evan decided to stay the course, get an education instead of immediately jumping into the corporate world, and he still ended up getting a job with that same company and working for the manager that was his manager in the internship. That must have been a really good manager because that same manager encouraged him to move over to Ironport, which eventually became part of Cisco. I think our managers have the ability to spot qualities in us that we can never see on our own. Some kind of hidden potential that's there that we're just not going to be able to understand or point out. And that's why Evan was encouraged to go into people leadership, even though he felt like maybe he didn't have the experience. I love that he decided to read books and listen to podcasts to try and fill some of those experience gaps. And it was interesting to hear about the multiple mediums he used, the Kindle app, using Audible to continue, but each time taking notes to help him remember what he read so that he could try and implement some of those things from the nonfiction books. I actually didn't know about the Libby app. That's a great one. It's a great one for people out there to try out. I've also included in the show notes Evan's list of book suggestions, if you want to look through it, and the way he rated them, between one and five stars. So if you're looking for that next read, it's a great list. If you're looking to go into software development, start with scripting, writing a script in one language and then trying to rewrite in multiple languages. This really reminds me of the discussion we had with Josh Duffney in episode 123 about how we should achieve competence first and then proceed to mastery if we want to. So in my mind, the competence is being able to write a script in different languages. And the mastery is being able to pull the pieces from each language to form one program together that can execute in a clean way what you want it to recognizing the strengths and weaknesses in each of the languages, and that this building of a portfolio of code samples is really proof of ambition for the would-be software developer to a hiring manager, even if you don't have all the skills necessary or all the skills that are listed in the job description. You can still apply and still give it a shot and speak to what you've been doing to try and fill those gaps. Next week in part two, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the lessons from Ghost Rules by the way, if you haven't purchased a copy of Ghost Rules, it's on Amazon. It's kind of like a stick of dynamite. It's a small book, a short read, but it packs a walloping punch in all the things that are covered. And I can't wait to go through more of them next week. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore, flying solo for now, from my buddy John White at V Journeyman, signing off.